Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Well, John, this week the state released the scores for the 2018 standardized tests. Those are the smarter balanced assessments that over 3 million students take each spring. And the tests are only one measure of student achievement under the state's new accountability system. But I have to say they are closely watched to see just how well students are doing. The tests that students took last spring showed only a slight rise in scores overall in math and in English language arts. I think there was about a percentage point increase in English. That's correct. That's right. It was about a percentage point increase for both. This was the fourth year of the Smarter Balance testing, and that small tick upward followed really flat scores the year before. Well, we'll be talking more about the scores, and we'll also be talking about the final bills that Governor Jerry Brown signed after 16 years as governor, and also about some of the bills in education that he vetoed during his last year in office. And we'll focus on one bill in particular, his veto of a bill that would have expanded the state's ban on student suspensions for disruption of school activities and willful defiance of school authorities. That's the terminology from the State Education Code. We'll speak with EdSource reporter David Washburn, who has been writing about this issue. But first, John, let's talk about Smarter Balance. I know the state is trying to move away from really emphasizing testing, but you know, we're a test-driven culture. It's hard not to pay attention. So why should we be paying attention to these scores? Certainly, it's one indicator of student achievement, and it's one that should be closely watched because it's aligned with the standards that students learn in school. And as of this year, only about half of a student's met or exceeded the standards in reading and writing, and only about 40% met or exceeded the standards in math. Now, one positive sign was in third grade and fourth grade, there's been consistent growth each year. And these are the students who have been taught the Common Core standards from the start. Their teachers likely have had some training in that, and perhaps they've had some good materials as well. That's a positive sign. But then you turn to the other end, the 11th grade. It's a real enigma. There was a big drop in reading this past year, and it's been pretty stagnant, the scores. Now, just to clarify, students take these tests from the 3rd through the 8th grade, and then only once during the high school years. That's the 11th grade. So that's really the only measure that we have to really see how students are doing at the 11th grade. But there is a problem. I mean, at the 11th grade, and we've seen this, I don't think it's hard to know exactly to what extent this is a factor, but these are low-stakes tests. This doesn't have any implications for students themselves, and many students, I mean, quite frankly, blow off these tests. They're more focused on AP exams, SAT tests, which have an impact on whether they go getting into college. So how seriously can we really take these test results at the 11th grade? If we know at least a good chunk of the students don't take taking the test that seriously. That's a great question. The English language arts test is quite difficult test. It has a challenging writing portion of it, for example, which takes a lot of time. So if you're not motivated to do that, you're not probably perhaps do a good job. The math test, is, you're right, it's the only test they take in high school. So it measures... The, the, the standardized test. The students are taking a lot of other tests, right? I mean, almost from the first week they're in class. Right. Presumably they are. <laughs> exactly. But it's the only standardized test they take in high school, and it covers a huge amount of ground from you know algebra to advanced algebra. So 
it's a little bit problematic from that perspective. And we talked about this before. In fact, we'll talk about this when we talk about bills, but a number of, of districts have wanted to offer the ACT and the SAT instead of Smarter Balance in 11th grade, precisely for that reason. They take those tests seriously, and the governor vetoed that bill this year. So, yeah, we can argue as to what the tests mean and so on, but one of the things that seems incontrovertible is that there are still huge gaps, achievement gaps, between white students, Asian students on average, and African-American and Latino students on average. I have to always make the point that there are lots of African-American and Latino students who are doing fantastically. But on average, the scores are low, and there are these huge gaps. And I think that is a concern, given that because of the local control funding formula, there are additional funds going to districts to serve those students. Precisely right. Back to your original question, why should we pay attention to this, is because we do want to see these gaps close, and they are significant, and they do start very young. And so far, after four years, they have not narrowed appreciably, and in the case of African-American students, slightly widened. On the other hand, for Hispanic students, their growth in scores, although still way, way behind whites and Asians, the scores have grown larger than the average in the state, which is a positive sign. You make a good point. I think that it is easy just to look at the overall percentage of students for the state. I mean, looking at all grades and all students. And that's actually not a very helpful figure. You have to go deeper and look at what's happening in individual districts where there are big differences. And then even in those districts, going deeper, an overall score for a district does not tell you how different groups are doing. And it also doesn't tell you how fast or slowly the groups are improving or not improving. Well, that's one of the reasons why they have a dashboard and California School Dashboard, which rates schools and districts according to a number of measures, including the Smarter Balance test. And that rating helps to point out to districts, hey, you need to improve in this area, particularly subgroups, student groups, ethnic groups, and racial groups. You've got a big disparity you have to pay attention to. Well, John, I was reading a paper just before this podcast written by Paul Warren from PPIC, the Public Policy Institute of California. And he analyzed last year's test results, which weren't really that different from this year. <laughs> so that does tell us a lot about what's going on. And he really dug deeply. And one of the key things that comes out is the gaps are really tied to the income levels of students and that there's a huge correlation, obviously, in income level to the racial and ethnic gaps that we are seeing. One of the things that these test results have put on the table is there's more money going into districts to work with African-American and Latino kids and low-income kids, but is it enough to really make up the impact of growing up in a low-income household. One of the studies in the Getting Down to Facts project by Sean Reardon, a professor at Stanford, pointed out that the gap really starts on the day that students arrive in school in kindergarten, that, in fact, if you really want to deal with the achievement gap, you have to start in preschool. There is another study in Getting Down to Facts that said 11th grade tests for Smarter Balance were kind of predictive of performance in college. So one of the points to be made is that this achievement gap begins early, and it has to be dealt with in elementary school and middle school. These tests, therefore, are good indicators of whether or not that is a closing, and it's going to take time, and you don't expect major, you know, big changes in scores from year to year, but over a course of time, you do expect there will be change. We're still early in 
the process. That's one of the points that Paul Warren makes is that at best you're going to have small incremental changes. At the same time, it is true that if the gap narrows, and I think there was a case in African-American students, they were narrowed by one, one point, one percentage point. If it continued at that pace, it's going to take many, many years to close the gap. And I think people are impatient for good reason. People are impatient, particularly legislators. As you said before, there are lots of things, lots of moving parts here. We have new standards, a new accountability system, a new finance system. So we have to examine the policies as we go along. For example, are the funds being directed the way they were intended to low-income and English learner students? And are the best teachers being directed to the schools that need them most? Well, those are two big challenges, and this is obviously a complicated area. But I did want to note one of the problem areas is that performance on math seems to decline as students go through the system. And by the 11th grade, with the caveat, we don't know how seriously students are taking the test, but with that caveat, the scores are pretty low. And that's troublesome. Yes, it's a great point. We talked about increases in third grade from one third grade to the next third grade. But as you follow these students from third grade through seventh grade, the scores seem to decline. So there are some obvious questions. Was it the test? Is it the standards? Is it the way math is being taught? Those are critical questions to ask. Okay. Well, thank you, John. We could talk about this in much greater detail, but uh, we'll have a chance to do that in the months ahead. When we come back, we'll talk about the bills that Governor Brown signed and those that he vetoed. And we'll talk with David Washburn about what's next for willful defiance bans on suspensions in California schools. This was a notable week in uh, California's history. Governor Brown signed his last bill and vetoed his last bill. And over the last 16 years, he's done both of those things many, many times. Over 16 years, he signed almost 18,000 bills and interestingly, only vetoed about 2,000 bills. But this is more bills than any governor has signed in California history and more bills than any governor ever will because no governor will be able to serve for 16 years as Governor Brown did because of the term limits that were imposed after his first two terms in office. Well, this year he did up the percentage of vetoes. He whacked a little larger percentage, 200 out of uh, 1,200 bills. Yeah, and that was like a 16% or so veto rate. And by the way, I'll mention that in 1982, he only vetoed 1.8% of bills. So he's become uh, more aggressive in terms of turning down these bills. And not only that, they're never overridden. So whatever he vetoes stands. It was interesting that some of the most notable bills that he vetoed were education-related bills. And there was a certain consistency behind the vetoes, and that was really sticking to his emphasis on local control, which has been a central pillar of his education philosophy during his terms as governor. Yes, a perfect example of that is his veto of a bill which would have required school to start no sooner than 8.30 in middle school and high school. He said that's really for local districts to decide, and we'll talk in a little bit about the ban on willful defiance suspensions, and he gave the same logic there as well. He also vetoed anything that costs money, 
and his response is, hey, if you want to spend money, do it through the budget. And he also vetoed a bill that would have allowed districts to offer the SAT and the ACT instead of the 11th grade Smarter Balance tests. He did not want to prescribe that for every district in the state. Right. He, in this case, he said, look, uh, the University of California and California State University are considering perhaps looking at Smarter Balance as a college admissions test. If they agree to do that, that takes care of the problem, so wait a while. He also vetoed a bill that would have set up a pilot program for ethnic studies courses. He said that he really is concerned about adding further requirements to what he called overburdened students. So we're talking about the vetoes. I do have to note, this has kind of been a pet peeve of mine over the years, that many, many laws get passed every year. And on average, Governor Brown has signed 1,000 bills every year. And you do have to ask yourself, do we need 1,000 new laws every year in California? Well, not only that, there are bills he sneaks in through the, quote, trailer bill, which is the addition to the budget. And that's how often how he gets policies made. Local control funding formula went through a trailer bill. We're going to take a closer look at one of the bills that he vetoed. That was a bill to expand the ban on willful defiance suspensions in K-12 schools. Now, willful defiance is a very vague category. It actually means willful defiance of school authorities and disruption of school activities. And quite a few school districts around the state have banned that on their own through all grades. A few years ago, Governor Brown signed a bill banning willful defiance suspensions in the K-3 grades, and there was a big push to expand this, to extend the ban to the 8th grade. So we have on the line David Washburn, our reporter in San Diego, who has been covering this issue closely. So David, let me ask you, uh, to me it didn't come as a huge surprise that Governor Brown vetoed this bill. I mean, he it was a heavy lift uh, several years ago for him to approve the ban on willful defiance suspensions for the K-3 grades. Originally, there was a big push to expand the ban to the 12th grade, and then the compromise was just through the 8th grade. So were you surprised that he didn't go along with this? On one hand, I'm not, because he indicated in previous veto messages that local control was you know of the highest priority to him and that this intruded on that on the other hand there was some surprise because many organizations including powerful voices like the school boards association the administrators association and also the california teachers association which had previously been opposed to any ban on on such suspensions had come around in recent times to either support this bill or remain neutral on it so there was some surprise that brown was not swayed by those groups why was the change david why did they come around A couple reasons. One, Senator Skinner, who proposed the bill, initially proposed it as a K through 12 ban. They compromised and made it a K through 8 ban with some caveats in the final version that passed the legislature. And that was one reason they got support from the Administrators Association and the School Boards Association. Another reason was was the, the continued data showing that the disproportionality in these suspensions when it comes to the higher rates of suspensions for African-American students and disabled students. And the Administrators Association in particular 
stated that that was a reason they had come around, that these disproportionalities are just too much for them to stomach. So the overall rates have come down significantly in the past, what, five years, have they not? Yes, John, rates have declined significantly across the board in the last five years. A recent report by the Civil Center for Civil Rights Remedies out of UCLA showed days lost to suspensions dropping by nearly half, and the rates for African-American students dropped significantly as well. So you've seen a lot of improvement, but the disproportionalities remain. You still see significant gaps between days lost among African-American students, especially African-American boys, and white students. And so is that one of the main reasons that this is an issue, that advocates are passionate about trying to deal with these willful defiant suspensions? And by the way, I mean, even this bill, it didn't deal with a high school, and that's really where you have most of the suspensions. So even the, if Brown had signed this bill, it would have only gone a part way to have eliminated this as a category to suspend students in California. Absolutely. And yes, this is the driving reason why advocates are so passionate about this issue. It is the the disproportionalities. And interestingly, though, if you look at the most recent data, it does show that in middle school, the greatest rates of lost days of suspension or due to suspension does come in the middle school grades, seventh and eighth grades. And the reason for that is that coming from elementary school into the middle school environment is a bigger, you know, bigger transition, a bigger change to students than going from middle school to high school. So there are actually a a big jump in suspensions in the seventh and eighth grade. The advocates made a point of saying that and that added to their disappointment to the fact that Governor Brown didn't sign the bill. We're talking with David Washburn, based in San Diego, who has been tracking the issue of willful defiance suspensions in our K-12 schools. David, was there any other reason that the governor cited in vetoing the bill? One thing he mentioned in his veto message was $15 million that was included in the budget trailer bill that is focused on alternatives to traditional school punishments, things like restorative justice and multi-tiered systems of support. So he did cite that there is new money in the budget, and the advocates are very happy about that money, to address and to promote alternatives to traditional punishments like suspensions. Another issue that the governor cited was that school districts can do this on their own. They don't need the state telling them to do it. And in fact, numbers have done it. I mean, LA Unified, the biggest district in the state, has basically banned willful defiance suspensions. So do you think this is now where the action is going to be, that this is going to have to be fought on a district-to-district basis? I mean, much more difficult. You've got so many districts around California, not to state the obvious. That is absolutely something that, that is being talked about a lot. You have districts, like you said, Los Angeles Unified, Oakland Unified, to name two very large districts, have banned willful defiance suspensions for all grades. Other districts like San Diego Unified, it's been a a topic of discussion. I think, however, you will see the advocates, especially with a new governor coming in, continue to push for this statewide ban. While Senator Skinner, who authored the bill that Governor Brown vetoed, is noncommittal on reissuing a bill next year, the advocates are very much keeping it as, as a high priority. You make a good point. Lieutenant Governor Gavin Newsom, almost certainly the next governor in California, 
He's taken a lot of positions on various education issues, but he hasn't taken a position on willful defiance suspension. So that's a question mark, whether he would support a ban through the eighth grade or maybe even through the 12th grade. Right, right. And there is a lot of optimism among advocates, the ACLU, the Children's Defense Fund, who feel that he will be more receptive than Governor Brown was. Well, David, uh, obviously this issue is not going to go away. We're going to follow with interest as to how this plays out in the next legislative session, regardless of who is elected governor in November. Thanks for talking with us today. My pleasure, Lewis. You know, John, one of the things I'm going to miss are Governor Brown's veto messages, which were often very haiku-like and often very blunt. Well, I was looking at one veto he issued, and he does mention the amount of jargon that it creates And he says, these issues are best handled by local schools, dash, and in plain English. Well, he did try to use plain English a lot, even though he was probably, still is, the most intellectual governor that California has had. And I did want to note that in his last bill that he signed, it was Assembly Bill 237. It was about providing greater access to a small loan program he put a P.S. This wasn't a veto. It was a signing statement. It says, P.S. And now onto the promised land, Calusa County. Where is Calusa County, Lewis? <laughs> well, it's up north, but he has a family ranch up there, and he's building a house. May have already built a house, and that's where he's going to be spending a lot of his time in retirement, or I don't know how he describes the next phase for Jerry Brown's life. I can't imagine him actually retiring. I think we'll still hear from him somehow. No doubt. And that just about wraps it up for this week in California education. Thanks to our sponsor, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation. Our producer is Shuka Kalatari. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. You can find us on iTunes and at edsource.org slash podcast. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. <laughs>